Why? Why? From the Harvard Graduate School of Arts and Sciences, you're listening to Veritalk. Veritalk. Your window into the minds of PhDs at Harvard University. I was curious. curious. I've always wondered. Why is... How did we get... Why? 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 I'm Anna Fisher Pinkert. Last week, we talked about how humans evolved to create this amazing substance, breast milk, that offers unique benefits to babies' bodies. But eventually, we all grow up. We stop drinking breast milk or formula, and we graduate to mushy peas or little bites of whatever's on our parents' plates. And then, at some point, we get to make our own choices about what we eat. But that doesn't mean that those choices are obvious or easy. In fact, Americans are kind of obsessed with the choices that children and teens make around food. In a city with a growing epidemic... I've tried every diet. I've tried going to the gym. I just can't get the motivation. This is going to kill your children. I was trying to eat healthy, but apparently it didn't work. In the midst of our national debate about how to wage war on childhood obesity, Hannah Corey was sitting right on the front lines. Hannah was a registered dietitian in a school-based health clinic. So I was working in Ypsilanti, Michigan, which is, it's like in between Ann Arbor and Detroit. So the community that I was working in was largely low-income. Most school-based health centers are based in low-income communities. The setup of a school-based health clinic is pretty unique. It's basically designed to be the perfect tool to educate kids and teens about how to eat healthy. It's a free clinic. Once kids have consent from their parents to be seen in the clinic, we can see them basically whenever. We don't ever charge the families anything. We do sometimes charge their insurance, but otherwise it's basically a free clinic. It was basically ideal. We'd, I'd always been told in classes, like, you know, the issue is that we don't have follow-up with patients. We don't have access to them. We can't meet them where they're at. Whereas I could be walking down a hall, a kid could be like, hey, Miss Hannah, I wanted to talk today, and I could get them out of band class that day. Like, it was almost an ideal situation in terms of access. And so I was able to like see patients over years and work with them and I knew their families and I knew like where they were shopping and all their options. And it felt like this, like, this is perfect. I, you know, I'm going to fix everything. (laughs) Like everyone will be able to be healthy because they have access to this. Um, And that's when I started realizing like, no, the, the deck is stacked against these kids and it doesn't matter whether or not they have access to me. That realization led Hannah to pursue her PhD in population health sciences at Harvard. Her program is offered through the Graduate School of Arts and Sciences and the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Hannah is also a health policy research scholar through the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. In her work at Harvard, Hannah's trying to fill in the gaps in our understanding of how nutrition, health, and discrimination intersect. There isn't a lot of acknowledgement in the literature of the fact that the obesity epidemic, quote unquote, has been like a panic for almost two decades now. So most of the kids I'm working with have been exposed to nutrition education most of their lives in some capacity. Like I would have students coming in to meet with me and they could like already tell me everything I was going to tell them. And so I think it is, I think it's short-sighted to think that it's education alone. The schools where Hannah worked were home to a lot of families of color, and I asked Hannah what challenges her students had that their white, wealthy peers didn't have. There were so many things. I don't even really work in, like, food access and food justice work, which was definitely a big piece of that. 
A lot of people know that so-called food deserts lead to poor nutrition, but there's a lot more going on. For example, it's only fairly recently that research has come out about the eating behaviors of families on SNAP benefits. When we talk about like binge eating and stuff like that, one of the things missing from that literature is that there are kids that are on SNAP benefits. And so what happens often is that their family gets about two weeks of food and they buy as much as they can and then they go through it. Because imagine having a household with a bunch of kids and being like, okay, make sure this lasts for the month. Like it would look like they were binging, but what was really happening was just like they didn't have food. They were eating, like, very little or just at school for, like, weeks at a time, especially towards the end of the month. When I was working in the clinic, I, like, knew the date that these kids got SNAP benefits because that's when, like, they could actually do something about what they were eating. And once you get into that cycle, your body then also gets used to, okay, sometimes I just eat a ton and sometimes I eat nothing. Um, So not only were they being, like, not able to control quote-unquote, what they were eating because of the circumstances of SNAP, but then it also set them up for the, these, like, patterns of eating that way. Remember when Hannah said that the deck was stacked against these kids? Well, once they're in a clinical setting, they encounter more challenges. We do know that, in general, minority populations have higher BMIs. And part of that is because the man who created it created it for white people. And the idea was that he was like going to find the perfect man. But when he said that, he meant someone that looked like him. BMI, or the body mass index, was invented in the early 1800s by a Belgian mathematician, not a doctor. That is something that often gets lost, is that this was created not for finding disease. It was just along this idea of like there is a perfect ratio of humanity. And then in the early 1900s, eugenicists were like, ooh, we like that. And so they picked it up. And that is why BMI is used today, is because eugenicists really liked it as a measure. And then it just kind of got like codified and put into medical practice. And part of that was because they're like, okay, we do see these connections potentially of BMI and disease rate. We talk about that, but if you actually look at the numbers, BMI as like a screening tool, you know, we talk about like mammograms, all these different screening tools. BMI has a false positive rate of 51%. But doctors frequently point to a high BMI as evidence that a patient is unhealthy. If someone was trying to sell you a screening tool and they're like, okay, so 51% of the time we tell people that they're sick and they're not, (laughs) we would laugh them out of the door. We'd be like, there's no way that you can sell this to me. Because we already have these notions in our head, I think, of being fat is bad, there, you know, we're like, okay, that makes total sense to me. And so there's like a lack of questioning that happens because it's confirming the biases that we have. So even though BMI is not a good indicator of whether someone is healthy, it reinforces our cultural norm that thin bodies are good and fat bodies are bad. And that's something that we see in any sort of discrimination. Like, that's what racism is, is that there are good bodies, white bodies, and then there are other bodies. Also, Hannah says that your weight is more likely to be a result of your genes than a result of your personal choices. Actually, 70-80% of variability that we see in body weight is genetic, and we do know that. Um, And so it's an interesting thing to go after something that we know is pretty genetic, especially when there are lots of other factors that are likely driving these things. Hannah saw this firsthand in Ypsilanti. 
As a part of the school-based clinic program, any student who is over the 85th percentile in BMI, which the CDC classifies as overweight or obese, was automatically given a referral to see Hannah. But she also saw a lot of students who are at a so-called normal BMI who had other questions about their diet. For example, students who are interested in sports nutrition. And so when I was working with these kids, I was like, okay, I do think that these kids could be eating more healthfully. But that was across the board. Oftentimes, the kids who were being referred to me were eating actually much more healthy because they'd been hearing these messages their entire life. And I think that's a, actually a very common misconception. And I think if you talk to a lot of people that have like lived their lives in fat bodies, they've been dieting and being told these things since they were very young, almost always. Um, and so often they are actually practicing more healthful behaviors than the kid who, you know, is very thin just because genetically they're very thin and they can eat kind of whatever they want. It doesn't matter if they house a pizza. Hannah believes that fat phobia also contributes to poor health outcomes. She points out that back in the day, we thought that African-Americans had a higher rate of hypertension because of genetics. Now we know that experiencing racial discrimination is also a factor in developing hypertension. She thinks that future studies need to look at, for example, the link between type 2 diabetes and discrimination against people who are overweight. I am very hopeful that in the next decade, these studies will start measuring weight discrimination and looking at it over the life course. None of those studies have ever tried to control for what it means to live in this world in a fat body, which is a stressful experience, <laughs> especially in a world that is like so focused on obesity prevention. Despite the preponderance of evidence that personal choices are not the most important factor when it comes to obesity, our culture is still obsessed with what we eat and how we eat it. So it's an interesting thing to me always when people want to like glorify a certain type of food versus demonize it because it almost, not always, but it will often fall into the categories of this is something that white people have decided is okay versus this is something that other people do. So for example, quinoa, that was something that was like traditionally a Latin American food um, that many people had been eating for centuries, but someone decided that it was the thing for white people to eat. (laughs) And it became, you know, it took off. Even the updated version of the food pyramid, which is called My Plate, is skewed towards the way that white Americans tend to eat. So, for example, especially in a lot of like ethnic cuisines, mixed dishes are what you're going to find. You're not going to find like a steak and potatoes. Like that is a very like white way to eat is this like meat, potato, that sort of thing. And so there is kind of this implicit assumption that that is how you're going to be eating. But what does it look like? When you're having this dish where it's like, okay, all those things are in there, but I have no idea in what proportion. Hannah's advisor, Josie Matei, is actually working on adapting nutrition education tools to make them more inclusive for Latinx families. Hannah thinks that we need to stop focusing on the right or wrong foods, just like we need to stop focusing on the right or wrong bodies. There is this idea that, like, there is a right way to eat and a wrong way to eat. And that is something that I think has very much come out of has been like an unfortunate and unintended consequence of a lot of the nutrition work that has occurred in the last few decades, especially with the obesity epidemic. For example, the trend of like clean eating. There is this idea of like there's a right way to do things and there is a way to be righteous and correct. And I think we see that manifesting in food. Has 
the science of what is a healthy food gotten significantly better in the last couple of decades. So I feel like yeah. you hear, this is a superfood. This is what we need to eat. So is there science behind that? Are we actually learning more about the relationship between foods and our bodies? Or is that all kind of pseudoscience? Um, it's a mix. It's definitely a mix. Part of the difficulty is that and often when you hear something like, this is a superfood, that sort of thing, what that is is that there is likely a bench scientist who found some compound that appears to do X, Y, or Z in this mouse or you know, the, these rats that is very promising. And I, there's nothing wrong with that type of science, but the problem is that often it will get glommed onto by media and kind of run with people have very real fears. We all have to like, in some way, deal with our mortality every day. And nutrition has been pointed to as something that we can potentially control. I can't control that my grandparents had cancer, but I can eat a healthy diet and I can exercise. And so I think people will focus on those things. And then if there's something that sounds like, oh, I could like, maybe this will save me or this will like prevent this thing that feels inevitable. It makes sense that those things get like glommed onto a bit and that people would get excited about that and really want that to be real. If you could make one change in a system mm. that you think would help people to eat better um, or have better outcomes related to nutrition, what would that mm -hmm. change be? One of the things that, again, has really driven me is that I spent an inordinate amount of time in the clinic just telling adolescent girls that their bodies weren't broken and that nothing was wrong with them. I think if I could, I would remove all of these notions about focusing on weight. And I mean, I'm hoping that my work will at least like inch us there. Walking out of my conversations with Hannah, I kept thinking and rethinking all of the assumptions that I make about healthy eating. Whether it's thinking that a green juice is going to magically help me lose weight, or thinking that teaching kids about veggies is going to make them less likely to be obese. Throughout this series, we've been thinking about food, what it means to us emotionally, culturally, biologically, nutritionally. And what I take away is that we should be kinder to each other about what we choose to feed ourselves and our families. Whether it's chicken tikka masala, baby formula, a vegan burger, or a whole pizza, we all need to eat. This is the final episode of our series on food. But if you can't get enough Veritalk, you can always go back through our archives. We have episodes about cities, displacement, plumage, and monsters. And remember, we have that extra cool collaborative episode on the podcast Proof featuring even more microbes. So search for Proof on your favorite podcatcher. We make this show because we love talking to really smart people who are finding new ways to understand the world. And if you like listening to this show as much as we love making it, rate us and leave us a review wherever you're listening right now. Veritalk is produced by me, Anna Fisher-Pinkert. Our sound designer is Ian Koss. Our logo is by Emily Kroll. Our executive producer is Anne Hall. Special thanks this week to Hannah Corey, Rick Scheiber, Julia King, Noah Levitt, and the PRX Podcast Garage. 
Hannah Corey's work is funded by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and the Strategic Training Initiative for the Prevention of Eating Disorders, a public health incubator at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health and the Boston Children's Hospital.